like basically it's a failure of management if people have to like burn themselves out to make something there's absolutely no good reason that great art can't be achieved and have a good work-life balance what does it really take to become successful as a writer or artist there are a lot of destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like we're told we shouldn't care about worldly success or money we're told that if we're good enough everything would magically fall into place that's a lie and it keeps us struggling, baffled, and hungry for any shred of information that might shed light on how to keep making the work we love. That's why get any two artists or writers or any creatives really together in a room, and it's a foregone conclusion that the conversation will turn to money and the nitty-gritty reality of being a professional creative. I'm cartoonist and creative business coach Jessica Abel. In my own life, those studio visit back-channel conversations with other artists where we share our insights and hacks anxieties and red flags have been critical to any success I've achieved. And now I'm bringing that conversation to you. This is The Autonomous Creative. My guest today, Tom Moore, is the award-winning animator and director of films and TV, including Wolfwalkers, Song of the Sea, Secret of Kells, and Puffin Rock. I met Tom back in 2015 when I traveled with my family to Ireland, and he was kind enough to invite us to spend an afternoon at the Cartoon Saloon, the animation studio that he co-founded in Kilkenny, Ireland. Tom's films draw on a deep well of Irish culture, folktales, and art, and that focus on deep roots seems so aligned with Tom's choice to locate the company in Kilkenny, where he grew up. Kilkenny's a small city. It's not the most likely place to find an Academy Award-nominated studio known for mold-breaking visual style, combined with deep commitment to traditional 2D animation techniques. But visiting the studio and meeting some of the team, I was so impressed with the progressive and inclusive work culture, and I couldn't help but feel that this animation studio had the power to totally transform the lives of the people who work there and the people in the town. And of course, you know, the lives of those millions who love the films. I was so excited to get to talk to Tom about his path from Kilkenny teen to one of the most highly respected animators in the world, who also runs his own studio. I'll bring you the inside story right after this. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by The Creative Engine. I talk to working creative people all the time, both on the show and in our membership, The Autonomous Creative Collective, and one of the biggest challenges they struggle with is procrastination. To most people, it feels like it's just a permanent character flaw, like they were born that way and doomed to suffer. But that's just absolutely untrue. Art is hard, yes, and we will all feel resistance to using that much cognitive energy on anything. But procrastination typically stems from specific root causes that are totally fixable. If your creative work is essential to you and who you are and your life, yet you still struggle with procrastination and it just feels like this is crazy. I want to invite you to check out the free Creative Engine Masterclass. This class will help you overcome your resistance and put your priorities first before you're derailed by everything else. The Creative Engine is a complete, simple, straightforward, and powerful framework that will help you pinpoint where your creative process breaks down and highlight exactly how to fix it. In it, you'll master the four essential phases of the creative process you need to produce awesome work reliably and you're probably skipping at least one, possibly two. You'll learn how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. And you'll overcome self-sabotage, take back control, 
and keep moving even when things get really challenging. This class is totally free and you will get immediate deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects by harnessing the power of your own creative engine at jessicaable.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Now let's start the show. Tom, welcome. Thanks. I'm blushing. What an introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I've been a fan of your work and Matt's work and stuff. So when you came to visit the studio, it was exciting for me too. I always had a sort of couple of parallel things in my head that I'd like to have done with my life. And one of them was make the kind of comic books that you would make. Well, I'm both sad and happy that you chose not to take that life because <laughs> there's still time. I would love to have so... seen those comics, but yeah, who knows? There might still be time. Yeah, I think there's time for a few other little side projects on you in your in your future. So I want to just start off with just kind of setting the scene and telling and getting to know a little bit about what your work life is like normally. And I know it probably goes through seasons. There's different because there's different stages of production and things like that. And I think right now you're kind of in the developmental stage of whatever's next. But can you tell us a little bit about what that's like maybe during production and then during a more in-between period like now? Or maybe I'm wrong. No, no, this is really, this is the first time in 22 years that I've taken any kind of a break. I'm just working two days a week, supporting the new directors and um, from afar. I'm in Paris studying life drawing and and urban sketching in the Beaux-Arts and mentoring in the Gobelin School. And it's something I promised myself for years and uh, only finally got to now because COVID delayed it even after we finished Wolfwalker. So my work now is very, very different. I'm just settling in. I'm only here two weeks in the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris. But for the past 22 years, since I graduated, or 21 years or whatever it is, it's been a kind of cycle, as you say, of development, fundraising, writing, storyboarding then into full production usually for about 24 months and then back into a cycle so i mean overall i made three feature films in that time and then founded the company and kind of oversaw a load of other bits and pieces that other people directed but in terms of the stuff i directed myself i was usually somewhere in that wheel of development or production post-production or promotion and i always said i was a bit like a chain smoker that i had to light the next one off the butt of the previous one so usually while I was deep in production and fed up with all the mistakes I'd made, I had the next one in development so I could go, well, okay, I'm going to put everything I'm learning onto the next one. So this is the first time I've consciously stopped after three features, which isn't this is a amazing. Lot. It's not a lot of hours of, of animation, but it's a lot of years, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's amazing to have this. It's, you know, the amount of care and love and just people hours that go into making a film like this is just in, intense, you know, and the results are, have so much impact all around. So it's obviously worth it, but be, to be able to take a break like that. And so, you know, to, I'm very so lucky. Make, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So you're at the Irish cultural center in Paris on what's the name of the street? Do tell. Rude to Irlandais since the time of Napoleon. <laughs> this is where the Irish have hung out and much whiskey has been drank in the honor of all our forebears while I've been here. But um, yeah, it's a fantastic spot. It's a beautiful old building that used to be, I think, a seminary for Irish priests and mm. then was one of the Irish colleges whenever the the good old uh, English stopped us 
having any Catholicism. They kind of sent all the priests here to train. It was like a little center of knowledge. And then um, it became a cultural center at some point over the last hundred years. It's a really wonderful place where like I'm hanging out with people that are from completely different disciplines. The only thing we have in common is we're Irish. Uh, there's a guy writing an opera. There's a chap writing a novel. There's, you know, people doing all sorts of things. So it's a really lovely moment for cross pollination and a little bit of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I love about the Autonomous Creative Collective is how how diverse everybody's things That's are. You know, it's all the same, the same concerns, creative concerns just go across the board. So, but to get back to when you're not in this lovely lacuna <laughs> between projects, what does your workday look like? I mean, is it like up at dawn, you know, slaving away over the drawing table? Is it in meetings? Like what? I know it, it varies, but just give us a little taste. Mm, that's a tough one okay so at, like yeah peak production i'd often be waking up early worried about what had to be dealt with that day i'd have a team of between 30 and 40 in kilkenny usually two or three co-production partners to touch in touch base with either in luxembourg france sometimes denmark denmark or belgium so all our projects. meaning other studios other studios we co-produce yeah mm -hmm. so like if say there's 200 people working on the movie that might be the, the key kind of like design decisions and the main writing and the main animation decisions are made in Kilkenny. And then we share the work with our co-production partners. So my day is often more about emotional intelligence and drawing over other people's drawings than drawing for myself when I'm in production. And then it's, it's all over all of a sudden. And then I'm into another phase, which might be flying around promoting it or as Wolf Walker's proved, I could do it all from my spare room in Kilkenny, which was nice in some ways. And everything was done by Zoom. But yeah, so like those are the three phases. I'd say development is the most nerve wracking and also the nicest because I'm drawing the most and writing and designing characters with my collaborators, writing scripts with my collaborators like Will Collins or Fabrice Lukowski, uh, storyboarding, all that stuff is really fun and juicy and creative. And that goes on for as long as it takes to get the story right or to get the finance raised or both or whichever comes first. And then that intense up at the crack of dawn into late at night every night for about 24 months is the kind of the grind of production. Because usually once mm -hmm. the story's cracked and the finance is raised, you're committed to a date to get it done by and mm. your partners will have you know committed their studios resources for a certain amount of time so you're really against the clock and you're really trying to do the best you can within that little chunk of time and it's really surreal because it's like it feels so hard to get to that phase and then you're like yes we raised the finance oh no now we have to make the movie so that's the <laughs> real you know to be honest with you i've i haven't dealt with the, that phase the best over my career i don't think i was taught enough about the emotional intelligence needed and the self-reflection needed during that period so i i'm pretty sure i burnt out on each movie at a different point you mean in this the self-management of sort of the amount that you're pouring into the process and the, the yeah. intense communication with other people all those kinds yeah. of things yeah and like uh, wolf walkers was much more collaborative but even then i still like to do a lot myself in a mm -hmm. maybe a bit controlly way so that was often the work that was done at 6 a.m or whatever mm -hmm. and then they come in and they see, they see a bunch of stuff on their desk and they go tom What's up? <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So you, your role in that period, and you know throughout it, but in, in particular in that period, is that as director, right? And so mm. 
I'm curious what that means because obviously you like to get your hands literally dirty, you know, actually yeah. doing stuff. Yeah. But are there also kind of managerial roles or is there oh, somebody huge. else who's handling that part? Yeah, see, I, I have not directed or co-directed anything that I wasn't also the producer of. And that was a very conscious decision of mine because I saw friends who kind of had their, their vision compromised by producers meddling or whatever. Mm. So there's a huge part of my job, which is a studio owner and co-producer, you know, so I'm answering to financiers mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm talking with production managers, I'm talking with line producers about the problems of the day. And there's always a fire to fight. So there's a good bit of that in there too. Usually lunch times are given over to meetings with my partners, Nora and Paul and uh, Jerry Sheeran, our managing director. And that's when we kind of download where we're at. And sometimes Nora is in, in another stage of production in one of her films. So sometimes there's, there's, there's more directors in the studio now. So yeah, sometimes it's just like, ah, what's going on? And then straight back into the fire of production again after lunch. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So... Tell me a little bit about how you learned to run this as a business. I'm sure it was as you were going, but I mean, what, have, where have you reached out for resources? What were big sort of turning points for you thinking about this as, you know, that it wasn't just making the film, but there's this whole structure that has to go around it. Yeah, that was the hardest thing. That's not what we were trained for in Valley Fermat. Like I was kind of trained to be an animator in someone else's studio, probably Don Bluth's studio or whoever set up the course, you know. And so when we set up our own studio, we had to learn all the other stuff ourselves. But it's a little bit like, you know, that Wallace and Gromit cartoon where they're going along on the train and putting the track down in front of the train as the train is going down the track. And we, we crashed a fair few times. We were really lucky. I think part of being in Kilkenny allowed us to crash and pick up the pieces and go forward again. Um, certainly after Secret of Kells and uh, Skunk Fu, our first TV show, we really hit a wall and we had to like borrow money from family and friends and things to get keep things going. And then from that lesson, we kind of learned that we needed that business savvy outside of the main group. Now, we did have another partner, Ross Murray, who was focused on the business side. But again, we, what happened was Ross immigrated to France and that gave an opportunity for us to hire a managing director. So we actually hired Jerry Sheeran about eight or nine years ago to become our managing director. And he'd actually been the MD of the Sullivan Blute studio in Dublin, which was kind of the studio that made me believe it was possible to be an animator in Ireland. It was a big American studio set up in the 80s and it made things like American Tale and Land Before Time. And depends how old your audience are, they might know these movies. But for me, they were like the cartoons of my childhood and the fact they were being made in Dublin was mind blowing. So when we first set up Cartoon Saloon, we asked a lot of advice of, advice off Jerry, who at the time was running his own studio in Dublin. And then by the time we were ready to hire a managing director about nine years ago, I guess, Jerry would, had become available. And that has really been the turning point in the business in terms of us thinking about in a very different way. Prior right, to that, I, mean, I always joke it was like the crazy artists from art school just trying to kind of make a living doing what they love to do. And we're still so lucky that we get to do that. But we became just a bit more disciplined about things after that. Right. I mean, just separating those things. I, th I feel like it's sort of like that switch over from the point of view of being a freelancer, where it's like, what's the next gig, the next gig, the next gig, and you're just kind of scrambling from thing to thing, to pulling back and going like, all right, what's strategically, what do we need to be doing here in order to set ourselves up to not crash and burn at the end of this next project? Yeah, see, I've been a member of Young Irish Filmmakers, and that was a wonderful experience as a teenager in a sort of mend and make do and 
go for it kind of you can do it kind of way but then we need to sort of graduate from that sort of philosophy and um, because on secret accounts obviously we'd crashed and run out of money and everything and so there was a graduation period where enterprise ireland which is a national body for encouraging sort of startups we were past the startup stage but you know for that kind of thing they came in and gave us a mentor and helped us make the transition and the irish film board like a lot of people were like delighted that we were getting oscar nominated and winning prizes and stuff and alarmed at how chaotic <laughs> um our, our business uh side of things was and i mean it wasn't all our fault i do feel it was part of the industry at the time like animation is goes through cycles and when we set up, when we set up, unless you were in CG, there wasn't a whole lot of work. So we were kind of scrambling between projects. But I do remember after Secret Accounts, I started asking everybody I met, how do you do it? How do, like I was trying to figure out how people did it. And I remember even saying it to you when we went for lunch when you visited the studio and you were like, well, I think you figured it out by now, Tom. It's like, oh, maybe we have actually. Somewhere along the way, we figured it out. But for years, I'd say for the first 10 years of the studio, I was always kind of had one part of my brain thinking geez maybe I need to get a real job you know maybe this is all gonna you know I'm gonna have to cash in this experience and get a real job as it were quote unquote real job um, yeah no I, I totally hear you and and that I mean that conversation is what we do here like that's yeah, why that's I have the show because then it. I love have it. permission yeah. to ask everybody exactly that and that's um, why I love listening so, to it because I used to ask that everybody I met I remember meeting Bill Plimpton like how do you do it like everybody was just trying to figure it out you know yeah so what was that moment for you? Do you remember a moment when you're like, I'm not going to have to go, quote unquote, get a job? You knew that you would be employable in animation, but it would, yeah. I mean, it's just a completely different thing. I mean, you said a few minutes ago that the reason you're a producer on your own films is you don't want to lose control. You said that you are maybe a little controlly and you come in in the morning and fix people's wolf's drawing. <laughs> you know, like, maybe, yeah. So kind of, what, along those lines, I try to I think I'm better now than I was. But yeah, I do. Oh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm teasing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but I but I understand <laughs> not not in this kind of like, um, not in a pejorative way, but in a yeah. we have a vision. I mean, you have a vision, you want to do 2D animation, you want it to be stuff that's rooted in your own, you know, history, experience, all these other kinds of things. And these are not standard issue films, you know, they're mm. not they're not cookie cutter in any dimension mm. and so you have to have that kind of control in order to make that stuff the idea but, of you saying like i need to, i'm going to go get a job as an animator someplace storyboard or whatever mm -hmm. uh, whatever it would have been and i know you were thinking about that in the first part of your career so what was there a moment when you're like nope i'm i work i work here this is this is me i do this yeah, yeah what happened was Ross Stewart, who co-directed Wolfwalkers with me, had been the art director on Secret of Kells. And obviously, when we crashed, we had to shrink down to just like 10 people. And Ross had been contacted by Leica to do some production work for Paranorman. And I was like, oh, I'd love to be part of that, too, because I loved what Leica were doing. I was a fan of Coraline. And Secret of Kells was kind of in its slow burn phase. It was picking up awards, but as I told you, we weren't, you know, we were scraping together a living, doing commercials and making a short film and stuff. So we weren't really booming. And I was picking up that work with Ross doing production design. And then it was on the cards that I might go and work with Leica, for example. And they're lovely people and I would have loved to work with them. But I remember Chris Butler, the director of Paranorman. I met him at the Annie's after we'd been um, nominated for an Oscar. And I was like, geez, I don't know. And he goes, I think you do know. I think this means you got to make your not another film. And I, it really felt in my heart like, yeah, you're right. And it wasn't just Chris. 
that trip to LA for the Annies, we'd just been surprised nominated for an Oscar. And so many people like Jim Capobianco and Pixar. I, I won't even try and name everybody, Brenda Chapman. So many friends in the industry said, look, you're living the dream. You're getting to make your own movies. This Oscar nomination is the industry telling you, we'd like to see what you're doing, not come over here and help us make whatever uh, we're doing. As much respect as I have for the craft in, in, in LA, it did seem like they all felt you'd be mad to chuck it in now that you just were nominated for an Oscar. So I really do think that that Oscar nomination was worth a whole lot. It was validation of what we'd spent our 20s building. And it was kind of a, a pat on the back and a reassurance that we should keep going, despite the fact that we'd learned some, we'd been bruised by some hard lessons along the way. Because I bet you they're all saying you're living the dream and you're thinking. Yeah, you've got free pizza this... and the swimming pool and all the stuff the big studios have, exactly. I do remember coming back from my first ever trip to LA, I won a Director's Finder Series award and Secret Accounts wasn't even finished, but the DGA had this thing for young directors. And I was, I think I wasn't even 30 at the time. And I went over and I got a tour of the studios and I met all these agents and, you know, the whole thing. And it was amazing because it was like a playground, like places like Pixar and Disney Studios, DreamWorks, et cetera. And then I came back and I was at my desk and I was jet lagged and there was like pencil shavings around the floor. <laughs> you know, there was like eight of us all on top of each other in a little office. And I was like, ah, mm. <laughs> you know, but it was all. So this is the dream, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So you keep saying, sort of referring to this period after you'd finished Secret of Cows and hadn't yet gotten this nomination, this sort of crash and burn period when mm. things really were pretty mm. rough. So do you feel like you made a mistake at any point there that mm. that you learned from or was it mm. just this is what's going to happen when you try to extend yourself to make a feature when you are just starting out you don't have the full structure around you i mean what, what did, did you learn from that there's two things we did we didn't have something else ready to feed the team we just were barely mm. finishing it because as i said we were laying track as we went and um ross and paul were amazing producers uh, ross murray and paul young they did so much work pulling the finance together. But they were just like us, you know, we'd all just been in college together. Ross and I had been young Irish filmmakers together. Paul had been in Valley Firm at Senior College. So none of us were business people, really. Ross was much better at business and Paul was much better at business than me. But even still, we just didn't have those smarts. And if we brought those in while times were good, we might have rode out that storm. I say all that and also there's factors beyond your control. I mean, it was 2009. That was after there was a crash. People had been betting on mortgages. There was stuff going on that was way beyond our control. And I remember taking meetings around the time that um, the Secret of Kells was finished prior to being released and nominated for an Oscar in L.A. I think it was that trip I was talking about. And it, it had it. There was a sense of everybody was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Everyone knew, you know, the bubble that the world had been living in was going to affect Hollywood soon. It was going to it was going to hit at some point. So there was that kind of tension in the air as well. So some things are beyond your control and you can't really do much about it. And if it hadn't been the Celtic Tiger boom in Ireland, I don't think we would have been able to raise the amount of money we raised for Secret Accounts, you know. But capitalism is fun, you know, booms and busts all the time. <laughs> Roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. It's like they're both the lesson that there are things you absolutely can't control and that are going to happen and you have to figure out how to ride them out. And also that um, you can identify specific things you could have done, like having more yeah, managerial built up... acumen, having more capacity maybe for even um, as so a small totally studio, 
yeah, even as a small studio, we built up a little business doing commercials, which I always hated. It always felt like using your powers for evil or something doing commercials. <laughs> and we did a lot of illustrations. We used to illustrate books. So we had a little tipping along studio for about 10 people. And we let all that go to focus on the feature and the TV show. So even that business was hard to pick up again because other people had taken that spot. And so we needed to go bigger and that took longer and that took some bravery on all our parts to kind of hold the line for a while and wait for the kind of delayed reaction to the fact that Secret of Kells had been nominated, Skunk Fu had done well. And, you know, you don't make money the day after it's released. You make it years later. It's a long, long tale. And even then, it's not like, you're not like, it's not like winning the lotto or anything, but it kind of, it builds, you know, you build a rights catalog, you build a, um, a reputation in the industry and mm -hmm. you get more and more trust and more people want to work with you. So we just had to hold the line and do whatever paid the bills for another while. And, you know, some great stuff came out. That Oscar nomination meant that stuff like doing the little section of The Prophet for Salma Hayek came along and Nora met Angelina Jolie and, you know, all that kind of stuff started to happen, which bore fruit like five years later. But those kind mm -hmm. of connections, we kind of had to stay in business to take advantage of them. Otherwise, we might have dispersed and just gotten quote unquote real jobs and never made another independent film anyway. Do you enjoy the relationships and business piece of this now at all? Or is it something that you're happy to hand over? I love the human side of it. And I wouldn't want to let go of the... Paul has really been our main kind of, you know, traveling salesman or whatever since we set up the studio. And Nora and I have been kind of the ones that stayed at home directing. And then over the last few years, as we built a, a business team around Jerry, like a, a head of finance and lawyers and all of that kind of stuff. I feel more and more comfortable meeting potential partners because I know that we have a team at home that are going to deal with that stuff, you know, and I don't have to get into the stuff that I'm bad at, like negotiating or playing hardball or whatever the heck you do to kind of get mm -hmm. to, you know, because we, we weren't great at, at good contracts, make good friends, but we weren't really good at, at contracts and stuff. We often seem to, kind of shoot ourselves in the foot and maybe that was part of just getting started and can't avoid it but um now i really enjoyed the. Uh, i mean when, when i arrived here in paris i went to a screening of the summit of the gods which was produced by didier brunner i really should mention didier's role as another mentor in my career we went to see that and everybody in the cinema was like the the french animation world and i knew them all either tangentially or directly from working with them and it, to me they're friends you know to me they're an extended family i'm really happy to meet them all and i'd be really really happy to initiate another co-production with any of them but i don't have to do the the business <laughs> i don't have to negotiate the contracts or go right i mean i think the cash all the stuff you're saying in terms of not making the actual artwork, but making the company, making the structure in which the artwork can happen seems to be about um, identifying partners, building relationships, figuring out how to hire and how to structure a business around people's expertise. Yeah. And I think that's something that like the hard skills I have, whatever they're worth, they were only a small part of it. You know, I think building the company really was about those soft skills and making connections and finding trustworthy partners and people that, you know, I mean, and what I wanted to say was like, there's a whole other part to my story that I think like I, I kept a blog of Kells during because I was so excited about everything I was learning and I wanted to share it with everyone. That's why I love what you're doing. Um, and it's the kind of thing I want to let people know. So the big thing for me was discovering European co-production and 
at whatever age I was, like 23 or 24, Didier Brunner, who was already a very established French producer, believed in what we were doing and took us on and sort of said our movie was his next movie. You know, he was in the middle of Triplets of Belleville and him doing that changed a lot. Even Irish funders took us more seriously because they said, okay, these aren't just a bunch of guys down in young Irish filmmakers' buildings in Kilkenny. They're actually internationally recognised and there's a serious producer in France willing to take a punt on them. And so from that point onwards, I think I learned a lot from working with DDA and all our puppeters, you know, because they're all somewhere in their own journey. Like DDA was like, whatever, 20 years ahead of me. But then some of our other partners were people who'd set up after they'd worked with us. And so there's a kind of European co-production model where we're all comparing notes and looking at how each other are doing. That's been a really important part of my career too. It's worth mentioning, I yeah. think, because you learn so much just from being honest and open with each other. This idea that, you know, everyone's in competition and we don't tell each other what we're doing, I think is so counterproductive because once the industry is doing well, it's good for all of us. Yeah, I mean, in general, I feel like there's um, there's so much... There's so many stories out there about the way creatives are supposed to work and the way we're supposed to make our careers work and how it's supposed to kind of magically happen and all this other kind of stuff. And we're reduced to running around to having, you know, sidebar conversations with people like, how do you do this? How do you how are you making it? You know, what's happening? Like, it shouldn't be that secret. It shouldn't be that hard to get this information. I think it's also an education. I think like young people, they study to, like you talked about this, I think one of the other things I listened to, people study to do their craft, to get the hard skills, but nobody teaches them all the hustle and all the work it takes to make a living as an artist. And I mean, it's a miniature version of it. So many people who work with us, they're kind of running their company of themselves or their company of a little group that work together all the time. And then they work with us sometimes and then they work with other people and they come back and they're kind of having to do a miniature version of what we had to do as a studio. Like there was a, a group of us, like me and Laura and Paul, and then an extended group of kind of friends and founders. What we were doing was looking for the next job as we finished up one job and discovering that you have to have the next one lined up. And that's exactly what so many of the artists we work with have to do. You know, if they come to the end of the contract, it's partly why we set up Lighthouse Studios. So just to have another island for people to swim to in Kilkenny, because one of our challenges being in Kilkenny was we we balloon up to scale so that we could do a bigger project. And then people would all be let go and they'd have moved to Kilkenny or, you know, what if people had families and things like that? So we had to think about that, the, you know, the other people were kind of going through that same cycle that we were going through as a company, you know. Right. So they had to have some place to go. Like they had to have some place yeah. to have new work and, and keep that, keep their own little, yeah. you know, business economies going. Yeah. You know what I love in France, they have this intermittence payment. Do you know about this? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's so perfect. Oh, the you? French. <laughs> yeah, they're so perfect. I mean, in Ireland, there's some really nice stuff. We don't pay income tax on like creative work, like writing a script or something, which is pretty amazing. But in France, it's next level. Yeah, it's next level. Yeah. Although you do pay income tax on writing income in France. Yeah, Yeah, but then it's worth it because then you've got this intermittence time when you're in between projects. (laughs) I think it's amazing. I really believe in, I'm a total lefty. Like I think higher tax and more social. I love the idea, like the Green Party in Ireland, and my wife is a member of the Green Party in Ireland, and they're really working on a universal basic income for artists. And I think I, I think the whole society should have a universal basic income. But if artists felt that their basic, basic income was covered, 
the amount of amazing stuff that we generate as a society. It's like even maybe like not to get too highfalutin, but we might solve some of the big problems that we're facing if people weren't worried about just making a living, you know, in order to get. But it's a bit utopian. It still doesn't exist outside of France and other enlightened countries. Yeah. And even in France, I have to say, like, there's some major issues with that kind of basic income level stuff. I mean, having lived there. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, as an American, I can only (laughs) gaze across the ocean in um, misty eyed. Yeah. But I suppose uh, America has a lot of of positives, too, because it's like, oh, yeah, for sure. Of creativity and like so much of the stuff that inspires us comes out of America, too, you know. And uh, I always feel like amazed at artists in America who like go to college and get like a big debt and all and then go into the business. Like it's such bravery, you know, there's so much. Well, I mean, I think that there's something to be said there about the uh, necessity is the mother of invention. When you're an artist and you do not have any social supports at all, like Americans don't, it's do or die. You know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like you're talking about when you sign all the contracts with your production partners and everything's locked in for a film and you've got 24 months to finish the thing. You know, that energy is kind of, that's American energy. That's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. we got to do, we have to do this. Like we have no choice, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's good and bad. You know, there's, there's upsides to it, but it's also really, uh, yeah. Complicated. Positivity. Like the amount of American artists, they're so positive. They're so upbeat about stuff. They really want to (laughs) give it a go, you know, Europeans can be a bit more cynical. It's true. It's weird, (laughs) but it's very true. I wanted to ask you about one other thing that I know is going to be really interesting to our audience, and I haven't really heard you talk about it that much, but you've been a father throughout your entire professional life. Is that not Mm. true? I'm a a grandfather now, yeah. You're a grandfather now, and you're quite a bit younger than me. I just want to get a sense of, so your son was born when you were in school still? Mm, I was 18, so I was Uh in my first year of animation school, Yeah, my wife was just starting art school as well. She took a year off. And uh, yeah, we were we were teenage parents, so that kind of straightened us up. And I mean, you know, there's a huge amount of luck. We turned out to be incredibly compatible. You know, we're still together, whatever, 27 years later. Yeah. We turned out to be really support for each other. But it's true, my wife, as an artist, had to put a lot of her own career stuff on hold until our son was about 16. She's only now, like, coming back into her own in the last four, four, five or six years, I suppose, really really getting back out there again as an artist. She was teaching a lot. And a huge amount of those crazy times I talked about, the rent or the mortgage or whatever was paid by the fact that my wife was a teacher. But also I think having my son made me not flit about and go, oh, I'll just work in this studio and this studio. Maybe someday I'll set up my own studio. It kind of made me make some, you know, I kind of committed early to a lot of stuff. And I see that you know, I see similar similar thing as different people for whatever reason. It may not be becoming a parent. Who knows what it is? But usually there's some external factor that makes people want to go the indie route and really go and stick with it. Sometimes it's, as you said, necessity can be the mother of invention. And for me, the opportunity to build my own company and build a life in my hometown was much preferable than having to emigrate and travel around and all of my sudden very young. I mean, being a parent anytime is hard you know there's a lot of work involved in it it changes you changes your perspective on the world and those kinds of things but also you know you've had to balance this family life and i know it's really important to you i mean your films are basically all about fathers and fathers and children you know and like that's in there so so deeply and and i I love that you are seeing that this perhaps had some 
played some part in your willingness to just throw everything into this yeah and also and do it it was a lot of the juice for stuff you know like you said i mean especially um say song of the sea i mean the main character was based on my son then like it looked like him at the time it took so long mm-hmm. to make it he was fully grown and leaving home by the time it was finished but the initial idea was he was that kid you know he was 10 years old and i think for me the movies i make I usually pack them full of people I love or people that are very close to me and that way I can live with them for so long because it's a long journey. Like once you commit to a movie, it's going to be maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven years of your life until it's finished and over and in the rear view mirror. And even then you have to stand beside it and either talk about it or whatever. Like, so, yeah, you have to pack it full of people you care about. So that's been yeah, one of my no. tricks. Yeah. I love that. I know you're deeply committed to your creative work, and yet when it comes time to make the thing, it's like you short circuit. Your inner critic comes roaring out and shuts you down. You find your attention dragged off by some other shiny new object. You can't stop feeling guilty and that you should be focusing on paid work. Your clients, your children, friends, boss, parents constantly demand your attention. Here's the thing, there is nothing wrong with you. There's just a breakdown somewhere in your creative engine, and you can repair it. I want to invite you to join me for the free Creative Engine Masterclass, where you'll learn which tactics will backfire when you're trying to get traction on self-generated creative projects and what to do instead. The four essential phases of the creative process you must implement to produce awesome work reliably, and you're probably skipping at least one. The good news hidden in your long history of valiant efforts to make your creative life work, how to diagnose what's off track and keep moving on your work, even when things get really challenging, and the secret to how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. This class is totally free and you will get immediate, deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick and the specific next step to take to harness the power of your own creative engine. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects when you join the Creative Engine Masterclass at jessicaabel.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Okay, back to the show. So I read a quote from you someplace that said, I grew up thinking it would be terribly tragic if I stayed in Kilkenny my whole life. (laughs) It's, it's cute. Like, it's exactly what, a, you know, like a teenager would say, right? But so you're a teenager, you're in this, you know, small city. Mm-hmm. And then you go off to art school in the big city. Mm-hmm. And um, then fatherhood happens. Oops. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. here you are back in Kilkenny. Yeah. I mean, Kilkenny, I think, making Secret of Kells, originally, it took way longer than I anticipated. But originally, there was a part of me that felt big plan B this is a great launch pad. Like if we make something decent here with the support of young Irish filmmakers, which felt very much like home, that's where, you know, that's where I met my wife and that's where I'd spent all my teenage years. I was kind of one of the, the weird art kids. I wasn't into sports and stuff. And Kilkenny is the All-Ireland champion at hurling. And I went to a hurling school and hurling is a Gaelic sport. And because I wasn't a hurler, I was so lucky there was young Irish filmmakers to hang out in, you know. So yeah, it all, it's felt Hurling, really... animation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love my favorite thing. My favorite thing is that the old seminary in uh, Kieran's, which isn't, there's not enough people training anymore at the priesthood. 
Kilkenny is what we ended up renting for Lighthouse Studios. So when we were installing all the Cintiqs and stuff, I was looking at the kids playing hurling going, Revenge of the Nerds! <laughs> my old school, yeah, my old school, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's a weird, cyclical, strange thing. I think stuff that was laid down, like our, our current president, Michael D. Higgins, I really think I owe my career to in the way that I've met him once and shook his hand. But basically in his career, before I was born, he'd set up things like the Irish language TV channel, the the, the, the Irish film board, you know, the section for it once actually. Like the amount of things he put in place, his vision for the arts in Ireland meant that it was possible for me to have a career as an artist in Ireland. So it's it's and, and Mike Kelly setting up young Irish filmmakers so that the town I was growing up in had a place where you could go and muck around with cameras and, and try and be a filmmaker as a teenager. So you know. So young Irish filmmakers is that like a a club? Yeah, what, what is that? A club. It was like an organisation and is it continues, um, mm -hmm. like a little after school filmmaking place. And they had like in the nineties. I always say this, in the 90s, it was a place to go to get your hands on the equipment. So I wanted to animate with the Amiga they had. And I wanted to use the, the Genlock and the stuff they had in the 90s, top of the range stuff. But actually, I always say this, none of that mattered. The equipment keeps on changing. And now kids can make movies with their phones. But what we learned was collaboration. What we learned was that if we came together on a Saturday, at the end of the day, we had something much better than we would have done if we'd stayed at home in our bedrooms trying to make something. And I think that's the main thing that I took from filmmakers. You, you learned relationships. Yeah, yeah. Like that's and that seems to be yeah collaboration and and building, you know, these kinds of durable professional yeah. relationships that have been just oh, yeah. you know key yeah. to your whole your whole career. Yeah, and Ross Stewart and I, I mean, it's funny. Like we looked at each other several times during the production of Wolfwalkers. Go. When we were sitting beside each other in school, trying to outdraw Batman, you know, I can draw a better Batman than you when we were like 11 and 12 and then in Young Irish Filmmakers. And we joined filmmakers equally to make movies and meet girls because we'd been to an old boys school. <laughs> you know, we were in our 40s and we were there making feature films together. So, yeah, it's been an amazing uh, lineage. Like, I don't know, someone used the word like kismet or something that, you know, we all met each other as teenagers. And we're like one of those bands like you two or something are still still rocking yeah yeah i read an amazing article i want to say in the new york times a couple of years ago that was about scenes mm. the, and how it, relationships between artists are one of the most powerful predictors of success ever like of anything you know and, and you could it was a sort of modernist chart and it was like you know who's connected to who and how do they know each other it was it was very cool i, I, I believe that i really do believe that I always think that's super interesting too. So um, I have two questions for you, basically about work-life balance. How do you prioritize time for your family? What do you try to keep in mind to try to balance these different parts of your life? You know, obviously, as we've gone through, there are different phases where I'm sure it's easier and harder, depending on where you are in production. But what do you have as a principle around that? I've tried to get better. I think I was bad at it. I discovered very lately that some of the stuff that was my so-called superpower was actually uh, an OCD diagnosis. And I regret some of that stuff. Like I remember kind of willing my son to sleep at night, reading him a story so I could get back to the animation desk or whatever. And I remember many, many times feeling like I'd overcommitted. I had to go to a festival. I remember being in Cannes and missing like his fourth birthday and feeling like, what am I doing? I'm losing the 
the balance, you know. And I think it was part of being so young and trying to get the, ba- the priorities balanced up. And again, thankfully, my wife was there to kind of catch when I dropped the ball a bit. Over the years, I've learned about work-life balance, and that's why I kind of scheduled this sabbatical for myself after World Walkers. I knew I couldn't just keep rolling from one into another into another, and I needed a bit of time to recharge or to let the field be kind of fallow, you know, so that you can see what happens next. Otherwise, I think you just burn yourself out. And then I do think I've burnt out and worked through burnout a few times in my career when I look back on it. And it's only the kind of the blessing of it being such a collaborative medium that I got carried by some of my talented collaborators during those periods, you know. So, yeah, look out. Like, I mean, geez, one of the most inspiring things for me about the younger generation as they come into the studio is how emotionally intelligent they are and how wise they are to the nonsense of being defined by your work or feeling that working hard was somehow virtuous or, you know, sleeping in the studio overnight because you worked so hard was something to be proud of rather than ashamed of. Like, basically, it's a failure of management either personal management or management as a company if people have to like burn themselves out to make something there's absolutely no good reason that great art can't be achieved and have a good work-life balance and i think i think honestly my preference will be a work-life balance rather than a great movie but that's old man maturity i suppose yeah i don't know that you'd convince you know 22 yourself to 22 year old self that that is the case like my hero, my heroes were people like Miyazaki and Dick Williams, who were like almost puritanically self-flagellating animators, always saying they weren't working hard enough. And they were so hard on themselves. They were famously really hard on their team. And whatever Catholic post-colonial nonsense was in my brain, I longed to be on their team for them to tell me I wasn't good enough and I had to work harder and all that stuff. So, you know, it's really strange when I look back on that whole culture where artists sort of, yeah, self-flagellated and made themselves miserable as some kind of sign of being a great artist. It's crazy, really. Yeah, totally agreed. Totally agreed. What does what did burnout look like for you and, and how did you come back? I think because um, I have, because my artwork, like my wife says, I'm a nicer person when I draw a few hours per day. I'm hoping after six months drawing every day, I'm going to be a saint. <laughs> but um, basically the drawing wasn't, the, the, there was times when I felt very burnt out with the business, with the pressure, the, the weight. The, I kind of had this, I think it was becoming a father young as well. I had this kind of paternal feeling about the business and I sort of over like was kind of called responsibility OCD by a therapist where I felt I was responsible for everybody and it was too much yeah it was you know it was classic um, embarrassing mental health stuff like crying in the toilet and pulling myself together and walking into a meeting and it's only that I'm on the other side of it and I got help that I can see how crazy that was but that went on for a long time yeah Okay, so with that in mind, what's your advice to young animators? Yeah, watch out for that. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't imagine if that's that happening, this red flag. <laughs> yeah, well, what was huge for me around mental health was one of our animation supervisors was just so open about his own journey. And then mm. he spoke about that, and then other people in the room spoke about it. And I was like, oh, oh, we can talk about this. We don't have to be. And I think it's a real service to talk about. And I mean, I'm mortified talking about it now, but I also think it's important that we talk about it. So I do think communicate with your colleagues and talk about your experience because I got so much value from that. And the other thing is the tribe. Find your tribe. You know, like if you're starting out, 
everybody's drawing. Every, most animators are in their bedroom a lot drawing. And, but try and find your tribe. Try and find the people. Maybe it doesn't even have to be in real life. Maybe it can be online. But try and find the people that will kind of encourage you and spur you on and people that you can work with that will you know, either help you in your individual journey or that maybe you can team up and do something together that's bigger than any one of you could do on your own. Because I do think there's real strength in numbers that way. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that is something I really see playing out in our community in the Autonomous Creative Collective is that just the, the energy of everybody jumping in and trying to help somebody when they're in a crisis point. It's really amazing and, yeah. and so powerful. Okay. So uh, how do you balance the needs of the story versus the needs of the budget? Do you find budget and time constraints valuable in distilling a story down to its most important elements? Yeah, I have a one of the editors got a frame thing that Richie Cody, one, the, one of the editors on Wolfwalkers did. He said, uh, so much of making a movie is trying to make as little movie as possible. <laughs> and it's really like that, you know, and I think that there's something like a haiku about a feature film, you know, it's it's very small, it's very, you know, tight structure. Not so, um, there's not a lot of room to be too, 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 too elaborate in different directions. You have to really pare down. And then when you have a tight budget, for me, we always try to make a, a virtue of the, the budget limitations and schedule limitations and, and try to find a style that worked within that budget rather than trying to go like full Disney animation and then just looking like a cheap uh, version of Disney when you couldn't you know, achieve that. So try to try to kind of design good solutions. I think design has been a big part of my career and it's like designing solutions to budget problems and designing beautiful ways to make stylized animation look rich enough to justify a big screen experience without having hundreds of millions to spend on it so yeah i think this whole thing of you know it's sort of going back to first principles in some ways saying like okay well you know what we could do is just chop off all of these features from something that's being done at a higher budget and say we're not going to do those features and so it's going to be a cheap version of the thing or you say okay well what could we invent that's going to yeah. do the job yeah, I remember Nora, Nora DDA again uh, was really strong like that because he had the experience of European co-production that we didn't have. We'd grown up kind of dreaming of being like, you know, American style animators or whatever. And so I always loved Eastern European animation and I ended up learning a lot by working with Keshkime Film Studio in Hungary and with DDA here in Paris and, and the team here in Paris. And I learned a lot about how um, I can't remember how DDA put it, but it was something like you have to be efficient, but that doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. Whereas I actually started to see a lot of the animation that I admired as a kid as a bit superfluous, like too, doing too much, like too many bells and whistles that weren't really adding to the story. Whereas we really learned to use visual language to our advantage and try and art direct our way and storyboard our way to making the story compelling before we'd even started animating. And then everything after that was kind of bonus, you know. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I'm going to get one last question in here um, from Owen, who says, I want to go into directing. What must I do to build up my skills for the role? And how did you do it? To be a director, I think it, it, being a director is a lot about communication and um, a lot about, I think you need to build a certain confidence to be a director as well. You have to sort of feel like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really sure of what I'm going to do, not that you know you're right, but sometimes a decision is better than no decision. Like an indecisive director is the worst thing. You don't want that. So you kind of have to build your confidence in that, whether that's making shorts, whether that's doing your own work, 
you kind of have to build a point that you know that your voice is going to work like what you want to say is going to work it's going to communicate what you're trying to say and i think you have to have something to say i think that's maybe the most important thing for a director not to just want to make a cartoon or want to make a comic or whatever just just to make one just because you'd love to do that but actually have something to say and that's a bit of self-work that's a little bit of inner work that you have to do whether that's meditating or journaling or whatever look at what you have to offer the world and then once you're clear on that then you can kind of communicate that i hope but i don't i mean you can't have oh yeah maybe you can have been but were you that confident when you started or was it a matter of doing the thing and saying i'm just going to try this and oh i guess it kind of worked you know now i'm going to do this and that's okay now i feel like i can make these decisions was there a process that you went yeah through? i was definitely terrified i was really lucky to have nora who was really strong on story and really confident on story beside me during secret of Kells. and of course fabrice who brought all that script writing chops to it where i was confident was on the art direction and animation side because we'd had a studio for five years and we'd gone you know we'd made commercials we'd made short films we'd made parts of other people's features so i felt pretty confident on that side and i had done a lot of work a lot of development work we'd spent a long long time we didn't have money but we were kind of rich in time so we'd spent a lot of time honing the look and how we wanted to do it and everything so i was pretty clear on that and ross and i did a lot of like scene illustrations to show the co-production studios how we wanted it done and like barry reynolds and the rest of the team on the characters did huge model packs where we really figured out every like we over over designed and over um, prepared on the art direction side and i saw it felt strong there story terrified really relied on collaborators voice direction terrified there was plenty of stuff that yeah it took you know feeling the fear and doing it anyway to get more confident and i'm still not as super confident in those areas as i've always been around the art side got it okay well that was amazing that was so great thank you so much for being here and sharing all this history with us and all of your insights on your career. Um, how can people find out more? I think the best thing is to follow the Cartoon Saloon stuff. If you follow me on social media, you'll just see lots of vegan ranting and uh, life drawings. Well, so, and cute granddaughter. Yeah, and photos of my granddaughter. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I, I just post my personal art on social media, so I'm not sure how interesting that is for people. But in terms of the studio, follow the Cartoon Saloon, you know, website and Twitter and Instagram and everything. Yeah, and watch out for Wolfwalkers. I felt super lucky to be able to see it early on, although I can't wait to see it in a theater one of these days. Yeah, man, I went to see Dune last night in the cinema, and I just Ooh. was like, it was an enthusiastic audience. It was a packed cinema, it was a huge screen, and I was like, oh, yeah. I've been missing this, you know, as, as good as having a home projector and everything is. Yeah, I've been missing. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. Tom, thank you so much for being here. I am really excited. And I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Nice to chat to you again. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Boyhandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden, and I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as any links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts, in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, and it would help us immensely if you would take a second and pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It just takes a few seconds, but it's actually a huge help to us and to our guests 
to get this podcast suggested to new listeners. We appreciate your help so much, and we'll see you next time on The Autonomous Creative.